Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review podcast. I am Melissa Carmona, co-director of podcasting, joined with fellow co-directors Josue Alvarenga and Rajuda Valichier. Today we have the pleasure of speaking with Michaela Knutson, a Duncan College senior. She is currently double majoring in history and political science with a minor in politics, law, and social thought. She has done historical and political science research on a variety of topics, including working with George Mason University's Character Assassination and Reputation Politics Lab, researching U.S. national identity. She is also the current co-editor-in-chief of the Rice Historical Review. Today we are discussing Michaela's senior dissertation surrounding the 1655 and 1686 Waldensian massacres and the British responses to both massacres, which is a culmination of her undergraduate research and projects. Michaela, how are you doing today? Great, thanks for having me on. Of course, we love having um, members of the Rice history community on here. So we can just dive right into our podcast and your dissertation. So I want to first ask, uh, could you explain the basic ideas of your dissertation and why did you choose this topic? Yeah, so my topics on 1655 and 1686 Waldensian massacres, there was a long history of persecution of the Waldensian peoples over the 17th century, but I'm looking at these two instances. And then the bulk of my research is going to be on how Britain responded, both the government under Cromwell and then under William III and Mary, um, but also the public and how those two different reactions interacted with each other and what they can say about British politics and the British political sphere in the 17th century. But it might be helpful to kind of back up a little bit and explain who the Waldensians were. So very briefly, they were, they were pre-Martin Luther schismatics. They were sort of the Protestants before we could say Protestantism even existed. And then the other key player that you might not know about or that the audience might not know about is Savoy. So they were massacred in both, is, both instances by troops of the Duke of Savoy. Savoy was a sovereign duchy in the 17th century that to some extent was influenced by France, but they were their own sovereignty at the time. And so I kind of got into the project when a few years ago, just doing some different research, and I heard that the Pope, Pope Francis, had apologized to Waldensian Church um, in 2015 for the church's repeated persecution of these people. And when I looked into it more, I found that there is this long history of this Waldensian people being persecuted both by secular leaders and um, with Vatican involvement as well. And I first discovered 1655, and so my research has kind of just taken off from there. Because it wasn't just 1655, it was 1686, and it wasn't so many centuries later, really, that the whole thing um, finally came to a close. But so this is kind of where it's all focused down on from that little wormhole that started in 2015. Of course, it's great to hear um, kind of the roots of this research. It definitely sounds like it's a long standing project that's been in the works for a long time. Definitely. So our next question is, what does the existing research for this time period, early modern European history, and then your specific topic kind of look like? Well, I mean, there's quite a body of research for this whole period. I think that generally when speaking about the Waldensians in this time period, the Waldensians are kind of a part or a piece in a larger puzzle of European history. So for the 1686 massacre, Waldensian involvement is really just this little piece that is generally looked at or kind of footnoted or mentioned when talking about the Nine Years' War and how Savoy ended up turning on France and joining the side and joining England's side. Um, against France in that war. But what I'm looking want to look at more is moving away from that general historiography and looking more at British responses and putting the Waldensians really at the center of this narrative. Um, but what's also interesting about the historiography for this time period is that you're really also having to trace back past historiography. Um, in a lot of instances, especially when looking at 
historiography and basing on it from the 19th century, they don't really footnote that often as much as we do today with uh, modern historical work. So they'll make a claim and you'll try and figure out what evidence they use to make this claim. And you kind of end down a wormhole trying to figure out where exactly they got their evidence. So it's almost kind of doing double work sometimes because you're having to trace back what the actual primary sources are that almost have to fact check a lot of the time existing historiography, which is really interesting. So I guess one instance is um, for the Waldensians, like I said, a lot of research was done in the 19th century on them and the various facets of their 17th century history. In particular, there was one historian and pastor that was Franco-Italian. His name was Alexis Mustin. So he provided a lot of great work that I built on. But again, with him a lot of the time, it's kind of double work. You find a claim that he makes and then you end up having to do extra research on okay, so is this claim, is there factual basis? Can I back up what he's saying? Or do I have to maybe perhaps find more research that'll go against his claim? And then, you know, it's really juggling the past historiography with the evidence. And so it's, it's fun, but also much more work than I thought it would be. Definitely a testament to how important good historical historiography is. We take exactly. it for granted, I feel, a little bit. Definitely. <laughs> I took for granted all the different, the bibliographies and the footnotes that um, are so emphasized when doing research and in all our classes. And But it's, I can definitely see why it's appreciated by historians to know exactly what you're citing, where you got your information, and exactly what you're building your claims on. What are the most striking differences between the two actual massacres? What are the differences in their depictions and the narrative created around each? So 1655 and 1686 are both strikingly similar and strikingly different. So 1655 comes with the interregnum era led by Oliver Cromwell in which they'd executed Charles I. So there is no reigning king at the time. And 1655 comes right after Cromwell pushes for this Western design. He wants to go into, he wants to send British troops, he sends British troops into the new world with the aim to take Spanish Hispaniola. They fail miserably, and they do take Jamaica, but it's really not the same success that he was hoping for. Meanwhile, they've also sort of concluded fighting with the Dutch for a time, and so then they move to perhaps treaty negotiations with either Spain or France, and Cromwell really plays France and Spain back and forth, but ultimately ends up negotiating with France. So that's kind of the, the background for 1655. Um, and then right at the apex of these treaty negotiations, this whole massacre happens, and reports get back to London and to Cromwell and to England, and it's that Savoy has massacred these Waldensian people, but it wasn't just Savoy or troops that were there. There were also French troops, and among them Irish mercenaries, with some conflicting reports about who hired the Irish mercenaries. And so what's interesting here about the narratives is that in the following outcry, um, both from citizens and foreign congregations in London to Cromwell and then Cromwell's subsequent publications or his government publications, um, all of the, the publications really have the, are steeped in this religious rhetoric. It's all very much talking about the poor Protestant peoples who've been massacred, and then Cromwell writes to several other European princes and polities and leaders, very much in the same sort of unified Protestant ethos sort of thing. Um, but at the same time, behind all this, when you're reading more about what Cromwell does, you see that there's really, there were some political benefits to rallying, the, the, rallying around the Waldensian cause. And so the thing to take away from 1655 is that there's all this religious rhetoric, but there were some definite political uh, 
machinations going on. Whereas in 1686, it's a little bit different. So it comes right after Louis XIV revokes the Edict of Nantes, which basically ends toleration for the French Huguenots and other Protestants in France and restarts persecution of non-Catholics in France. And because of Savoy's relationship with France and France putting pressure on Savoy, the, the narrative really goes that Savoy's duke at the time then goes and restarts persecution of the, of the Waldensians in this particular case, sort of with the pressure of France. Um, so it's, it's explicitly religious, but yet this, as the Nine Years' War takes off in the late 1680s, early 1690s, the rhetoric surrounding it becomes less and less religious and more about absolutism and anti Louis XIV, and to the point where there's a, a few pieces that I found, or a, few, or a key piece in general specifically, where it talks about the Waldensian cause and the Waldensian being persecuted without a single mention of it being religious at all. And so it's the two cases, they're both religious massacres, and there's definitely a religious component to both of them. The ways in which religion is used and then left out of the narratives and the way in which political machinations appear and are used, they are a little bit different. I think it says something to the effect of how religious and political um, concerns in international diplomacy in the 17th century kind of evolved. It's very slight, but I think it is a testament to the transition from more of an early modern focus on religion to the latter end of the period where you're going more into political concerns and international power politics. Okay, so kind of delving more into the 1655 massacre, mm -hmm. um, so what are some of the biases in the narrative surrounding that particular massacre and where do they arise from? And then also what role does the accepted narrative, well, the accepted narrative around Cromwell play in this? Yeah, so I think the two parts of that question kind of go hand in hand. And so, I mean, there's several biases depending on, my piece kind of goes into perhaps how different narratives can fit in different existing genres around massacre and such. But I'll perhaps focus on three different I guess you call them biases. Well, I guess the, maybe not biases, but um, focusing on three different sources of blame for the 1655 massacre, which I think speak to the biases or perhaps the agendas of different authors. So throughout the whole, I mean, the half year that the massacre is really focused on, um, there are three different individuals or groups or, or actors that are blamed. The first being, well, I'll just name all three. The first is France, Spain, and then the Duke of Savoy's mother are three that I think are kind of interesting to focus on. So the first one is France. Like I mentioned a little bit earlier, right when this whole massacre occurs, France and England are at the apex of treaty negotiations. And while Louis XIV's France, particularly under Cardinal Mazarin and Cromwell's government are negotiating, there is some pushback from their own citizens because Cromwell and England Cromwell and his allies are adamantly Protestant, and uh, Louis XIV's France, of course, is adamantly Catholic. And so you have Catholics in France who are opposed to negotiating with Protestants in England, and vice versa. So in England, again, focusing on English responses, when the reports of the Waldensian massacre reach London, and there's word that it's not only the voyeur troops that are massacring these Protestants, but also that there are French troops there, and perhaps that the French troops were involved with bringing about, or France was hiring the Irish troops that were there. And um, that leads to even more anti-French sentiment in England. So the first bias blaming France um, really could be the bias of the anti-Catholic, those who are, who are uh, questioning 
the Kremlin's negotiations with France. So that's kind of the first one. So having to keep in mind that perhaps some blame of France that arises in the uh, primary sources could be perhaps some of that lingering existing anti-French sentiment from ongoing negotiations at the time the massacre occurs. More interesting though, I think, is the second one, the fact that blame then arises against Spain for the massacre. So again, I think I mentioned earlier that um, France, or England was involved in negotiations with France, but there was a time also where Spain was soliciting Cromwell for a treaty as well. And the whole time that Cromwell is negotiating with Cardinal Mazarin in France, he still does kind of leave France, or no, France, with Spain with the possibility that he could come back to them. Don Alonso Cardenas, who is the Spanish ambassador, is still in London the whole time. And even after the Western design and, and Cromwell attacks, I mean, there's still a possibility of Spain being the whole time. But after Cromwell and Mazarin sort of hastily wrap up the Waldensian situation, um, only then does it really seem that blame for Spain starts to come out. It's interesting, there is this one pamphlet or, or um, one piece, I can't remember the pamphlet or if it's a sermon of some kind that's printed, but it explicitly blames Spain for the massacre. And so it's interesting that there must have been, I think, bias that could be coming from this one, is that once the whole negotiation, the treaty with France has been solidified, France is no longer an acceptable or a useful source of blame. So it shifts to the new enemy, the new mutual enemy of this new alliance, which is Spain. So perhaps it's interesting to read those pamphlets with that perhaps, that bias in that context in mind. But perhaps one of the more interesting ones I think that I've read across is the one that blames not the Duke of Savoy for the massacre, but the Duke of Savoy's mother, Christine of France. So some background on her is that Christine of France had served as regent of Savoy for a time when her son, the Duke of Savoy, was underage. And short, quite shortly before the massacre, in the, in the year, a few years or before the massacre, uh, the Duke came of age, but really let his mother kind of keep her power and, and stay as effective as regent. Um, and so she's in power really um, while this is all going on for the most part by most narratives. And so some pieces go to blame her for the massacre instead, but to back up and perhaps provide some context on her, not, so not only is she the Catholic regent of Savoy, but her sister is Henrietta Maria, who is the Dowager Queen of England in exile in France, and both women are Catholic. So we've got Cromwellian England who has this massacre of Protestants in Savoy. The effective regent is a Catholic, is a Catholic woman, and her sister is their sort of enemy exile dowager queen in France. So it's an interesting position for Cromwell and his allies. But then one of the larger genres that it's interesting to put this in is that there was an existing genre of writing that against female regents, queens, princes, especially Catholic female queens, regents, princes. Um, one, it, for example, could be John Knox's first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women, which was written in the late 1550s that was railing against a Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, her mother, Marie de Guise, who at the time was regent of Scotland, and then Mary Tudor, Queen of England at the time. So these writings really do fit this wider genre of blaming female Catholic rulers and queens and regents for horrid actions and poor ruling. And so blame for her is really interesting to read how this all goes about. And then other ones that'll blame the Duke of Savoy, there are some diplomatic writings from um, Cromwell's different agents across England. They'll mention that Madame Royale, who is Christine of France, 
um, but she was there and doing things. So it is very interesting how perhaps some of the other biases could be influenced by this wider existing genre of anti-female queen, anti-female regent writings that have been around for about a century by the time of the massacre. So much that goes into determining where these biases come from too. So that's incredibly interesting. Mm-hmm, um, looking at all of these sort of sources of, well, I guess the blame that people place on different parties involved and how those have historically arised. Exactly. Would you say that Cromwell's motivations for responding so decisively to the 1655 massacre are purely religious, or did he have a political diplomatic agenda as well? This is a really interesting question because I think it gets to the heart of one of the most long-standing contested debates about Oliver Cromwell was to what extent his religious convictions were legitimate or impersonal or whether or not they were more political motivation. And I think um, what I've come to is that I I make a a little bit of a distinction between, um, at least in my writing, perhaps between the two different ones, in that a lot of the writing and everything he does of officially for the most part, all when um, all his citizens in the, the stranger churches petitioned him on religious grounds. He writes to foreign princes and leaders that are Protestant on religious grounds and with religious rhetoric. And when he uh, creates a day of fasting and puts together a collection and, and um, pledges his own funds uh, to the collection for the Waldensians, it's all done on very religious terms. And so while I think it's likely, uh, possible even likely, that there was some religious attachment. It is interesting that religion really, at this point, it it really served a purpose in his political actions. Um, And on that note, I don't think we can um, ignore how politically expedient this becomes for him. So, of course, it goes back to the negotiations with Spain, with Spain, with France at the time. And um, in kind of holding up the negotiations on this Waldensian bit, and the Waldensian massacre and support for them, it really does get, allow him to leverage England to a huge degree. On the one hand, so it wasn't just that he was writing other Protestant princes and leaders, the Swiss cantons and all them, um, just you know on, on the basis of helping the Waldensians, but it really did threaten France, the pact that there could be this inter-Europe or in, inter-European Protestant pact, which, um, or it's sometimes called the Protestant International, which, and there's some debate in historiography about whether or not it was legitimate or just um, lip service for diplomatic reasons, but it, I think it was a serious concern of uh, Cardinal Mazarin and Louis, the Fort, and Louis XIV in France that these Protestants would unite together against a Catholic power. And because uh, France was already antagonistic with Spain, had been at war with Spain, I mean, there really wasn't going to be a, a uh, Catholic alliance between the two of them. So I think it was politically expedient on that one, on that end to, for, Cromwell, for Cromwell to make France fear that they were going to go to some other Protestant powers and they wouldn't need France and France would be kind of stuck by, by itself at that point. Um, I think there are also perhaps some domestic political reasons that are uh, helped for Cromwell for, this, for supporting the Waldensians and that uh, 1650s were not exactly an easy time politically for um, England and, and Britain to an extent. And so finding a common group to rally around and to rally the people around, it's, it would have been helpful for Cromwell, definitely, especially as he had ongoing struggles with Ireland, Catholic Ireland. And so to answer, to go back to the, the question you asked, 
Um, I don't think we can say they're the reasons for supporting Waldensians were purely religious. They were definitely, um, it was expediently, expedient diplomatically to assist them. Um, but I have to think that it's possible that he did have some religious, uh, personal religious, uh, I don't want to say ties, but um, he may have felt a personal connection to some degree. But for my reading, I'm looking not so much at what Cromwell might have felt, but what was going on around him, if that answers the question. Did any other Protestant nations or communities aside from Britain intervene in support of the Waldensians? Yes, actually. So it's, I think that my focusing on England in this particular regard might be a little bit misleading in that perhaps it makes it look like that Cromwell was the main one and Cromwell and then later England in general were the main ones leading the whole support for European um, intervention for the Waldensians, but that's really not the case. So of course Cromwell does write to other Protestant nations and, and states, but England's really not the main power to take up support for the Waldensians. That really, I think, goes to Swiss cantons and to the Dutch Republic. Um, most of the refugees out of Waldensian refugees out of Savoy end up going to the Swiss cantons and then even as far as the Dutch Republic. Uh, and we get to 1686. So William III, who was first William Duke of Orange, um, before he ascended the English throne in early 1689, I believe, but he, I believe, was in conversation with Waldensian leaders before he ever assumed the throne in England. And of course, that would have been orange. So the answer is yes, that there were other Protestant nations that really did push for support for the Waldensians to the point where in, it was either late 1680s, early 1690s, when Savoy was on the verge of switching sides um, in, with the Nine Years' War, the coming Nine Years' War, away from France and Louis XIV to England, and I believe it was the Grand Alliance. Um, and I believe, what have been the Swiss? I don't want to say specifically, but it was definitely one of those already in the alliance that had been involved with the whole Waldensian thing for some time. Um, really kind of pushed Savoy to stop persecuting the Waldensians of a condition of sorts to joining the alliance. So yes, there were other Protestant nations and they arguably probably did to some extent, more for the Waldensians over a longer period of time than just Cromwell's little bit while he was negotiating with the French. Okay, so now kind of turning the focus to the research process itself, um, we have to ask, how have you worked around the <laughs> COVID-19 pandemic? Was it a factor in your, um, like your research process at all? It was a huge factor. Um, so my original project was different. The one I, when I submitted my proposal to do the honors thesis program, my original project was, it was only on 1655. It didn't focus on 1686. And it was looking at a different angle of the massacre. But because of COVID and European archival closures and travel restrictions, I completely had to reach, change and revamp my whole project to reflect what sources I could access largely virtually only. Um, and so, yeah, it's a completely different project and I had to do some digging around and see what exactly I could access. How could I do a senior thesis project on early modern Europe largely without really doing a bulk of the research in Europe at all? So I've been using a lot of online archives and scan sources um, with a lot of help from um, Dr. Polinson, uh, especially, <laughs> helping me track down where I can find sources, but nor, uh, huge help. 
Um, but I am hoping to hopefully return to my original thesis project in a master's program next year. Yeah, fingers crossed for that. And exactly. <laughs> definitely interesting how um, the whole COVID pandemic is affecting how we research as well. So it's definitely, yeah, whole new world, really. What are some of the challenges in researching the early modern period for the subject of your research specifically? Um, I would say there are probably three main challenges. The first being kind of the obvious that none of the subjects are still living. So the historical record that exists and the documents that we find are really all that we have, with the caveat being that it does seem that, especially with European history, we're always stumbling upon new sources that people didn't know existed before. So there is that, but um, we kind of need to read between the lines to the best of our ability and find the truth or what really happened with the documentation that we do have access to, um, which can be especially difficult considering that many of the surviving documents were government published or endorsed. Of course, the rise of print and print culture makes this slightly easier towards the end of the early modern period, but there was still heavy censorship um, in many regions, especially in England. Um, for a good period of the time. So really dealing with information that's available to us and trying to figure out what is just, what were government apologists and perhaps um, was there any uh, divergence from the record with the truth. The second one being just access to documents, like I mentioned with the whole COVID uh, dilemma, being that there are been extensive efforts to digitize records in the past two years, but plenty of documents are still only available in archives scattered across Europe. And then trying to figure out which archive the documents you're scattered in, in which European country and where they are. Um, so access to documents is, is a huge um, deal, even though it's becoming much easier in the past few years. And then from a purely practical standpoint, there is a sort of a language difficulty. Um, first, in being able to read early modern script and language. I mean, it's, of course, language evolves over time. So there's that bit, but then also reading the early script. I mean, it is beautiful, really, these, the handwriting and script that these um, diplomats had, but sometimes reading it can still be difficult, especially within a different language. Latin was still the language of diplomacy in many instances, but diplomats also were writing in local vernaculars. So some of the diplomatic records that I've been reading, luckily there was a, um, it was Sir Samuel Moreland, who was Cromwell's envoy, for the Waldensian massacre, and he researched and collected documents. And so, luckily, he combined a lot of his records and published them. And after his time of researching Waldensians and, and the massacre, but and published it in the late 1650s. So there are some translations. But when I, I for a time was in Cambridge University in their library where they have the originals, and there's so many different languages, and so there is a bit of a language barrier there. And um, especially when you're talking about diplomacy and diplomatic history, there's so much there that um, I really am relying on the, the printed stuff um, that Moreland printed for an English audience to a large degree. So there is that bit. And so there is a fear that perhaps you're missing some bit of it and you're missing a piece here and there because you only in that instance have the letters really on one side for some things. There are some back and forth letters printed, but there is a possibility that you're missing something there and that's just a document access problem. Thank you, Michaela, for taking the time to speak with us today. We hope that this semester will be a productive one for podcasting and we can feature more members from the Rice History community. We also want to thank our listeners for tuning in today. Don't forget to check out the Rice Historical Review Virtual Edition alongside picking up your hard copy, which is coming soon. In the meantime, check out our other podcast.
podcasts and short form pieces at www.ricehistoricalreview.org. Thank you for listening and remember we further the future by promoting the past.